Today's scripture reading is from James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of Jesus. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but, yet your last, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not follow, fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Praise be to Christ. Thank you again, Bob. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, along with the magnificent Russ Ramsey and Derek Harris and Casey Kramer, and I look forward to taking the July 8th weekend off um, uh, because of that slip and slide uh, voting thing. Um, if you vote for me, I might be here. So, uh, we are in a series, we're actually approaching the end of it, uh, on the book of James, and we, we've subtitled it, The Ethics of Grace, and uh, today what I want to do is talk about suffering a little bit, uh, because that's where the text has us today. Um, it has been a, a heavy couple of weeks for me on a personal level and, and on an emotional level, um, because uh, I, I, I got an email and a phone call and a text message all requesting that I be on the restoration team of a friend of mine who, uh, and, and the story actually became very public, uh, who lost his ministry uh, because of a moral failure. And this is number five for me uh, in the last year to year and a half or so of people who are my friends who have lost their ministries because of moral failure. And, and one of the things that weighs on me, of course, is that these are my friends. And it's always tragic when a pastor collapses morally. But the other is the recognition that I'm completely capable of the same things. Because I know the frailty of my own heart. I know how fragile I am. I know how vulnerable I can be, especially under pressure. And so, Paul David Tripp uh, wrote this book called Dangerous Calling, and it's actually a book written specifically for pastors and people in ministry. And I'm revisiting that book right now, largely in response to what's happened with my friend. And in the first chapter of that book, he talks about… Um, a season in his pastoral ministry where he was on the brink of moral collapse, where his public life actually was not congruent with his private life. And he describes himself as being a very angry man at that time. And he recounts uh, an argument that he was actually having with his wife, which had become customary because he's so angry, or he was so angry. And he blew up at her at the end of this argument and, and said to her, you don't even realize that 95% of the women in our church would do anything to be married to somebody like me. To which his wife responded, I guess that puts me in the 5%. <laughs> well, 
which was a watershed moment for him in all seriousness. It was a life-changing moment for him, for the person who knew him the best to call his bluff and to say, your public life and your private life, very, very different, and your private life is the real you, and I'm calling you out on that. I mean, I, I can recount a number of times where my own family members have said, your private life right now is inconsistent with your public life. We're all vulnerable. You know, James mentions Job and his wife in verse 11. Job and his wife, he actually just mentions Job, but the wife is a huge part of the Job story because you've got two people who share identical circumstances. And they have for many years enjoyed a lot of success and a lot of prosperity. And then they experience a series of devastating hits. They lose their business, they lose their income, they lose their resources, their home. They lose 10 children. They have 10 children. They lose all 10 of them in in a terrorist attack. And Job's impulse response is, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's wife in the same circumstances, under the same pressure, says, curse God and die. Often what's really in there comes out in the pressure moments, and sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it's not beautiful at all. Another thing that happens during this season is that Job, it says, is afflicted from head to toe with ugly, porous sores. And the wife still has her health, and, 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 and their reactions out of these circumstances show us something that we need to take very, very seriously here from James this morning, and that is that it's possible to have a damaged body and a beautiful soul, and it's very possible to have a beautiful body and a very ugly soul. And it's moments of pressure and, and those trigger moments that reveal what's on the inside. And, and, and really, we may never know the difference until we examine our speech in private and under pressure. Examine our speech in private and under pressure. Because Jesus said it, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what's in there? You, you examine what's, what comes out of here, and you'll know what you're really made of. And what James is doing is he's writing to a community under pressure to a community that is suffering because persecution is happening of those who identify with the name of Christ. And, and what he is calling out is that, 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 that many of them are responding more like Job's wife to the pressure than Job. You know, if you go back a few chapters, you see that there is double speech where, where on the one hand, they'll bless God with their mouths, right? Maybe even lead worship music. But then they're cursing people. They're saying negative things and insulting things with their mouths about people that are created in God's image. So there's double speech. Blessing God but insulting people means you're insulting both, is what James says. And then there are fights and quarrels that he writes about, hostile and hurtful words about others and to others. There's boasting where, where, where people are glorifying themselves with their language instead of glorifying God. And now in this text, he adds swearing, which is in this context, making promises and not following through with them. And then grumbling. 
Cynicism that, that, that comes out of the mouth. The, the glass always being half empty. You know, people who suck the air out of optimism and joy by, by always seeing the negative side. And so what James is after is, is putting to death the root of, of what's in there that causes toxic speech to come out of the mouth. And there are two points today, just two. Establish your hearts and take the long view. That's how we address the toxins inside that lead to toxic speech. Establish your hearts, he says in verse 8. When life gives you lemons, that's when you're the most vulnerable to become cynical, self-absorbed, and jaded. And so, the two encouragements that James gives here to counter that is listen to rebukes, listen carefully, and listen to the Scripture. Listen to the rebukes. Okay, so Conan O'Brien gave this speech. It was a commencement speech, a graduation speech to uh, the graduating class at Dartmouth a a few years ago, and this was in the wake of his losing his dream job uh, of being the host on The Tonight Show. He lost that gig after a very short period of time, and you'd think that he'd come out cynical and angry and bitter, and I'm sure in his private moments he dealt with those things, but here's what he said to the graduating class at Dartmouth. Please do not be cynical. I hate cynicism. It's my least favorite quality, and it doesn't lead anywhere. Nobody in life gets exactly what they thought they were going to get. But if you work really hard and you are kind, amazing things will happen. So James says very similar things here, except with a more direct and blunt approach. Verse 9, don't grumble or you will be judged. Verse 12, don't swear so that you may not fall under condemnation. So last Sunday, uh, Russ Ramsey gave a sermon on uh, an even sharper text from James where James says verbatim, your riches have rotted, you are self-indulgent, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, you are murderous. So in reading James, most people don't you know, walk away from the book of James after reading James thinking, man, that guy James is somebody I'd I'd really like to have a beer with that guy. You know, I'd really like to hang out with him, go on vacation together. We don't think that about James because James, for some of us, strikes us as as maybe a bit pent up and, and who wouldn't be after growing up with a big brother who was perfect all the time. You know, who wouldn't be pent up after being compared to that all day long, every day? But the truth about James is he's not pent up at all. Just like the Scriptures are not pent up as documents. Wherever there is confrontation, there is an underlying motive from James and from all the Scriptures. There's an underlying motive to recover the heart, to rescue the toxic speaking person from the toxins inside. So Tim Keller talks in in very direct ways about the spirit of irritability. And he says this, pettiness, jealousy, self-pity, harshness, always being unhappy about things. Grumbling is all a seed or symptomatic of something terribly poisonous and toxic. 
on the inside. Don't underestimate negative postures. Don't underestimate a grumbling spirit and irritability and, and, and being the person who sees the glass half empty all the time. Don't underestimate what that is. That means there is poison in you. And when there is poison in you, that means there is an immediate death threat hanging over you. And you need to get it out before it gets you. Or as the great Puritan writer John Owen said, always be killing sin or it will always be killing you. This is serious matter for the grumpy gusses around us. It's not a lighthearted thing. It's a rescue mission too. I remember when I was six years old, our family was on vacation, and I saw this lovely bush, you know, outside, and, and, and I started eating the red berries because my mom had always told me growing up, berries are healthy, they're good for you, they, they have vitamins in them, and these berries tasted very sweet, and then my mom and dad come out, and they see me eating berries, and they're like, how many have you had? Well, oh, probably about 20, 30,000 of them, and, and, and they recognize this is a moment of crisis because our son very well may be ingesting poison, and he, he thinks he's taking in something sweet, but it's actually toxic, and it turned out they were poison. And so what they did was they took me to the hospital so that an act of violence could happen to me, <laughs> so that a greater act of violence, a more subversive and insidious and death-blowing act of violence would not. They pumped my stomach, and I'm still with you today because they did. Anywhere that you see Scripture condemning anything or anyone, it's coming from a motive of rescue. And what James is saying is, don't fight it. And don't fight your friends like Paul Tripp's wife who call you out and say right now they're in the 5% instead of the 95 Don't resist it, he's saying. You know, like Oscar Wilde once said, a true friend is one who stabs you in the front every now and then. Not in the back, but in the front. Not with a sword, but with a scalpel. And it says so in the Psalms. A rebuke is a kindness. It's a kindness when somebody calls you out. And so Job says to his wife, after she says, curse God and die, Look, I realize I may be putting our marriage even further at risk, but you're speaking like a foolish person. You're speaking like a fool instead of speaking from wisdom. And I share your suffering. Or James saying things like this to us, don't grumble or you're, you'll be judged. Don't swear so that you may not fall under condemnation. Your riches have rotted, you're self-indulgent, fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You're murderous. Part of loving somebody is to hate the evil in them. If you enable evil to continue and to fester, you don't love somebody. You don't love that person. Put people in your life who will love you by telling the truth when you need to hear it. When we avoid that person in our life, we, we run in some ways to our own peril. And the other thing is, listen to the Bible. Notice in James here, words like consider, you've heard it said. Look at Job and the prophets. He, he's, he's, he's recounting stories that he 
apparently assumes they already know. In other words, he, he's saying, you know, those, those realities, that you, the, the truth and beauty from the Scriptures, from the sacred text that you have taken and put into the archives of your memory, bring them back to the forefront and keep them there. That is part of your safeguard. That is part of your protection. You know, James is assuming that Job and the prophets and other stories are familiar stories embedded in their memories. Instead of archived away, they need to be brought to the forefront. Be a people of the book, he's saying to them, because that's the only way that you can be healthy. So I do a good bit of speaking to students, uh, college level and also young adults, and have done for a number of years. And I've got this standard line that I use when I start talking about dating and, and looking for like a mate and somebody to spend your life with, because there are, there are a lot of people, not everybody, but some young adults are, are really, that's really on the mind. What kind of person should I meet and what kind of person should I end up settling down with? And I always say this, never, ever, ever sacrifice character for good looks. Somebody looking good in a pair of Levi's is, is a distant, distant, distant second to somebody with a humble heart and a well-worn Bible. And if you ignore that, you may set yourself up for a very, very difficult, painful life. Are you going to marry Job or are you going to marry Job's wife? If you have to choose between the two, it is always to be better to go through life with somebody who has a beautiful soul and a damaged body than it is to go through life with somebody with a beautiful body and an ugly soul. It's always better. If you can get both, <laughs> terrific. But if you can only go with one, charm is deceitful. Outward beauty, fleeting. But the person who fears the Lord, that's the person to be praised. The people who finish well are the people that you want to spend your life with. And those are the people, young adults, all of us, who are in church once a week instead of once a month. Those are the people who are in the Bible once a day instead of once a week. Those are people who are in community actively and regularly with people who have the same trajectory and the same dreams of growing more humble and having more character and who desire humility greater than giftings and, 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 and who desire character even more than they desire platforms and reputations, and big salaries. Where Jesus is in the center of their thoughts versus on the periphery of their thoughts, that's the person you want to live your life with. Settle for nothing less. Take a person with sores on their body from head to toe rather than somebody who would curse God and die under a moment of pressure. Establish your hearts. Know what's good for you and get it in and know what's bad for you and get it out. And sometimes there has to be a forced vomiting, which is what so much of James is about. You know, you're not listening, so I'm going to put some pressure. I'm going to apply some pressure. I'm going to send you to the hospital for a moment of violence in order to save you from a greater violence than you're doing to yourself. Take the long view. That's the second thought. If you are suffering... He's saying, 
Consider this, the single chapter, as difficult as it is, as dark as it feels, in the grand scheme of things, it is a single chapter of an eternity that if this story is true, if resurrection is really real, will only get better forever and ever and ever and ever. James is saying you've got an everlasting spring ahead of you, and so hang in there during the seasons of dormancy and darkness. He uses the agricultural metaphor and says, you know, consider the patience of the farmer. You know, most of his days are spent, most of his days are spent waiting for rain and for harvest. You know, spring is lovely in Nashville. So Patty and I both, you know, were driving out last night to, to watch one of our daughters perform. And, 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 and we have this eureka moment because of just how incredibly lovely Nashville is this time of year. It's green. It's plush. The flowers are in bloom. But the season before the season that we're in, the branches on the trees are empty. The grass is brown. The air is cold. And, and, and in many ways, it feels out there like death. And we get SAD, seasonal affective disorder, because it feels like death around us when the reality is, if we hang on and remember that we live in a seasonal city, spring is on the way. But what about when spring never seems to come? You know, sometimes the existentialist philosophers give us even greater insight than, than, than many Christian preachers do. Nietzsche said it this way, to live is to suffer, and to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. So there's a book that was recently uh, put out by a now-deceased young neurosurgeon named Paul Kalanithi, and it's a book called When Breath Becomes Air. It's a bestseller. I'm sure many of you have read it, especially in the medical community. It's, it's pretty breathtaking. So he's a Stanford graduate, neurosurgeon, graduates the top of his class, uh, finishes his residency, he's ready to launch, and he's diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so, the superficial look at his life is this. His life has been a waste. His life has been all preparation, no fulfillment. But that's not how he sees it. He writes as, as, as one who comes from the perspective of, of being a believer in the Jesus story. And what he does, instead of giving up and becoming cynical and sort of joining, you know, Shakespeare's Macbeth, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Instead, he presses in more with his patience, with his marriage. He dives into his work. He dives into his marriage. He and his wife even decide to have a child together while he has terminal cancer, as if to say, we are not going to allow death, mourning, crying, pain, suffering, cancer to dictate the storyline because we know because the story is the Jesus story is true that there is no such thing as terminal in the Jesus story there are little chapters that feel like death and, and that feel like winter time and that give us seasonal affective disorder but everlasting spring with the plush grass and the blooming flowers it's on the way because it's promised and it's secured and sealed by the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's what uh, Paul Kalanithi says. 
The fact of death is unsettling, and yet there's no other way to live. He's acknowledging what we've been running from all of our lives. The mortality rate is one person for every one person. I am a dying man right now in this room. I'm a dying man preaching to dying people. The only kind of people that I'm preaching to right now is dying people. And I'm a dying man. It's a quote from Richard Baxter, the old Puritan. Every life in this room, unless Christ returns, every life will end in death. Every life in this room, you may be at the peak of your career, your life is headed toward anticlimax, just like Paul Kalanithi. He just met it earlier than you did and earlier than I did, or than I, earlier than I will. And so the question here is not how we avoid death, because we're not going to. The question here is, how do we live well in the face of what we know is coming. And James says, look at Job, look at the prophets. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, look at the prophets. Consider the prophets. So, one to consider is, is the one whose words we're saying actually during our offertory today, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, God extends to Isaiah a job offer. And the job offer is this, for the next 10 to 20 years of your life, what I want you to do is be my messenger, speak my words to people who will not take you seriously, who will reject you personally, and who will eventually saw you into. And you know, at, at the, um, the launch event for Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, Missy Wallace, the director, uh, this was at the City Winery, I know some of you were there. She, she pulls out this statistic from, from, a, from a survey that was done that, that reveals that 80% of the people in the world that have jobs are deeply dissatisfied in their jobs. How do you think Isaiah must have felt over those 20 to 30 years? Here's your job. No one's going to take you seriously. You're going to be rejected, and you're going to be sawn in two. And what is Isaiah's response to that invitation, to that job offer? Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. I think one of the Psalms says, I, I, essentially, I would rather serve God at the poop gate of the temple. I'd rather clean up poop and be near to God than to dwell in, in, in the luxurious tents and houses and palaces of those who don't know God at all. the prophets. How did they get this perspective? Through checking out of reality and pretending that death wasn't around the corner? No, it, it was because they were more realistic, not less. They saw the full story in every chapter, not just the little chapter that they were in. The difference for Isaiah, the different for, difference for other prophets is this, faith. Hebrews chapter 11, faith, the evidence of things that we hope for and being certain of things that we don't see with our eyes being certain of God's promises, in other words. And it says, it continues to say in Hebrews 11, they suffered, the prophets did. They suffered flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all of these did not receive what was promised to them in their lifetimes. Anticlimax. 
Since God had provided something better for them, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. That was Job's anchor, right in the middle of the Job story. He bursts out. It's almost this parenthetical statement that's actually the most significant statement in the whole book. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will stand with Him on that day. Though my flesh be destroyed, with my eyes, I will see God. That was enough for him. In verse 11 here from James, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. This was where Paul Kalanithi was coming from. You've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Purpose. There is no such thing as a wasted circumstance. The fact of death is unsettling, but there is no other way to live. This is what compels a dying man diagnosed with terminal cancer right after he finishes his residency to chase after life instead of quitting on life. Isaiah, in retrospect, if you think about it, we've already quoted him this morning twice. He is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the whole New Testament. We sing every year from Handel's Messiah, most of which comes straight from Isaiah's text. Every valley shall be exalted and the rough places made plain. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government, talking about Jesus, there will be no end. You know, even from the valley of the shadow of death, Isaiah is looking ahead to the later chapters, not only of the story, but they're also the later chapters of his story. So when we are tempted to grumble, James says, establish your heart, listen to rebukes that are true, develop an intimate relationship with Scripture, consider the farmer and Job and the prophets, remember who you are. You know, Blaise Pascal has this wonderful statement in Pensees where he says, For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? What what, what Pascal is doing is he is calling back, he's stirring out of the archives back into the forefront of our memories. You come from paradise. You are a king. You are a queen. And you have lost your throne, but it's only temporary because paradise is being restored through the dismantling of the true king, King Jesus. So don't just remember who you are, also remember whose you are. James, get this, James, the brother of Jesus, calls us his brothers, which you know what that means. It means Jesus is also our brother. James isn't pointing to himself, he's pointing to the one that he grew up with, the one whose eyes, whose perfect and pure eyes, saw his life in private as well as his life in in public. Jesus, our brother, God has established you in his family by disestablishing Jesus and dismantling Jesus on the cross. Jesus became the farmers whose field went dormant. Jesus became the sufferer who lost everything. He became the king who fell from his throne. He became the prophet who would be sawn in two. He became the beautiful soul, the truly beautiful soul whose body was made ugly.
But wouldn't you rather have the beautiful soul with the marred, disfigured, abused body than an ugly soul who looks good in a pair of jeans? What are we after? What are we after? God grant us character that is greater than our gifts and humility that is greater than any of our successes. God flush the toxins out by putting the goodness in. And we have an immediate opportunity for that right now. You know, that's how dialysis works. You get the toxins out by, by sending pure fluids through the body to flush out the toxins. We get the spiritual toxins and the emotional toxins and the grumbling toxins and the boasting and factitious you know, gossipy toxins out by ingesting the blood and the body of Christ, which is broken for us in purity. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ given for you. So we're coming now to our communion moment. 